Welcome to Ethics Today, a program dedicated to the art of listening, to taking a step back, listening to people who can give us an informed perspective on some of the important things going on in our world at this time so that we might act in a more ethically responsible manner. Today's guest is Dr. Andre Johnson, Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Media Studies at the University of Memphis. He is co-author of a book titled, The Struggle Over Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. In addition, Dr. Johnson serves as senior pastor of the Gifts of Life Ministries, an inner city church built upon the servant leadership philosophy in Memphis, Tennessee. So Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for taking time to visit with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is indeed an honor and a privilege. I've really been enjoying the, uh, the Bible study sessions that you had been doing over the past several weeks um, uh, with your, as part of your ministry, and you've been mm -hmm. holding these on Facebook Live. Uh, and then last week, of course, you really, you really talked about the protests, and uh, I think yeah. you're going to be doing that again tonight. Um, yes. Could you just share with me and with the, uh, the listeners on this podcast uh, what you're seeing? When you, when you look at what's going on in Memphis, in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. in Washington, Atlanta, mm -hmm. all over the country, uh, what are you seeing when you, when you observe these protests? Well, again, thank you for the invitation um, and thank you for this um, dialogue. Uh, I think it's um, needed from um, people who genuinely want to learn and want to hear, to listen to one another. So um, I am supportive of all of those um, efforts. Um, so what do I see? I see pain. I see frustration. I see anger. I see hands up in the air, not knowing what else to do. Because this is not the first time. This is not like it would <laughs> within a month think about this 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 is what when people ask me what, what do you mean by frustration so think about within a 30-day period a month a month we saw uh ahmed aubrey jogging and got shot by vigilantes i mean this, was, this is what we saw right we didn't see, but we heard about police breaking into Brianna Taylor's home and shooting her dead eight times. Uh, and we know that it happened uh, because uh, we have reports and we have the body and somehow her boyfriend who was arrested because he shot at the police not knowing he thought somebody was breaking into the house, he's released. So we know that happened because you just don't release a person unless you know that you did something wrong. So we know that happened. We also saw in Central Park a white woman, okay, a white woman threatening an African-American man by saying, I am going to call the police and then I'm going to say that an African-American man is uh, harassing me or intimidating me or, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. And then on Memorial Day, Lord have mercy, we saw Derek Chauvin, and I like to say the names. I, I won't, I'm not going to be passive here, Rick. I'm going to try to be as direct as possible. Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck of George Floyd for almost nine minutes. And here is, here is the part where I don't think a lot of people really understand. That was bad enough. Okay, we get, we, that's bad enough. That should be fireable. That should be, you should be convicted behind that. That's, we, we, we get that. But Rick, the look on his face, the look on his face, yeah. the way that he proudly, proudly now, stayed on the neck of Brother Floyd. And he looked around, hands on his hip, hands in pockets, you know, just like this is normal. 
You cannot dismiss the act from the expression on his face. And I said, you know, I went uh, to social media and I was wrestling with that because I couldn't get that picture out of my face. And I just said, this is what pure evil looks like. This is the example right here. And let us not forget, there are cameras rolling. There are people telling him, please, sir, let him up. He can't breathe. He's calling for mama. He's hurting. You got him down. He's handcuffed. The other, uh, other two officers we, we discovered later were pressing down on his back. So you got a knee and you got officers holding you down. And people are asking you in a nonviolent way, because I know we're going to get to that, in a nonviolent way, please, sir, please, let him up. Let him up. That's in a month. And the problem I really have with all of this and every time something like this happened, because we know this is not going to be the last time, we will have something else, I'm sorry to say. But because we never learn our lessons. What's frustrating to me is that after seeing all of that, that many folks still cannot empathize enough to at least say, I understand. I got it. You know, I don't totally understand, but I, I, at least I see your point. You know how you just like, yeah, I may not, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You can't even get that. And, and that's that's not that's so that's 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 what I see. I see pain. I see frustration. I see anger. I see um, don't know what to do next. Um, I see none of the strategies um, um, working and yet and still look at what it took. Look at what it took, Rick, to get folk to act. The DA was not going to act. <laughs> it took, it took protest, it took just bringing attention to this situation and it took a video god we would not even be here you would not be interviewing me i'm sorry to say if it was not for that terrible tragic video yeah if somebody would have told you that that happened many folk would have said that just no no not the police no they would never do now you know i know police done some shady stuff but they would never put their knee on the neck of a person for almost nine minutes and choke them out i refuse to believe that if it was not for the video yeah the <laughs> we would not have this kind of public reaction without that video right and the, my my question is like are is racism actually getting worse or are we just seeing more evidence of what's always been right. going on because everybody's got cell phones now and we've got right. to get it out immediately. And so we're just, we're, so we don't have a good sense of actually whether there's progress or not, or are, and this is something I have to ask you because I just don't have a good sense of where society is going with these issues. Well, um, within policing, in America, what if we really would have turned the corner back in 1990, let's say two, um, Rodney King? Yeah. So even if you don't want to go in history, you just want to, you know, do the trajectory of history, you can start in 1992. And I can ask the same question, has race relations gotten any better? And you know, for a lot of people, no. And, and, and the reason, but, but there is a inherent fallacy even in the question. And here's what I'm talking about. The inherent fallacy is the myth of progress, the historical embedded myth of progress that each and every year we're just getting better and better and better and better and better. And 
are we? You know, um, hmm. I, I, I just saw a guy get, you know, choked out with a knee on Memorial Day. I don't know if we're getting better or not. I, I, I don't know. And, and yes, the other part of that is this is the same stuff that many Black folk probably have told you privately or publicly and other white people privately or publicly. And this is what our cameras, people have been telling you this. People have been telling us this over and over and over and over again. And it's been dismissed. It's just been like, okay, they're irrational, they're emotional, they, they got an ax to grind, it's political, it's any of those things but truth. So black truth doesn't matter. That's something I want to talk about a little bit later too. But, but to say that it's getting better is just to deny the fact that we have never addressed any of the issues at its foundational roots, which is, of course, white supremacy and, um, and all that it brings to bear upon this country. So, that's so yes, we got more cameras. We see more. We we, we we see more. And yet and still, we still don't want to address, even when we see, even when our lying eyes, as my uh, four uh, parents and <laughs> used to say, even when our lying eyes, we still don't want to address the issue. However, I want to, here's, and I, I want to challenge you so you can correct me, right? Because this Please. is how dialogue works. And I'm, I'm, Fully prepared to admit, I I might, you know, I I've got a narrow perspective. One of the things is, no, I, no, go ahead, please. Right, so you, I I already live in kind of a bubble in society with right. you know, with my my friends and colleagues and so forth that I have. But um, it seems to me, especially over the past five years, mm -hmm. uh, that we are paying much more attention to identities in general, race and gender, um, uh, and race and gender in particular, but just about any group that I'm a member of, like a, a, a service organization or a committee and so forth, one of the first questions that get asked is, what is the composition of this group? Mm -hmm. Now, right. prior to five years ago, that wasn't the first question that would get asked, and now it is, right? Okay. Um, and uh, we've had tremendous discussions, both in the nation and many communities about white privilege, because this mm -hmm. has been a term that was, uh, um, just became prominent a couple of mm -hmm. years ago, and now mm -hmm. it's part of popular discourse, and people are talking about it. And I also find young people, and especially young people of color, willing to uh, challenge me publicly about my use of words and so forth, my sure. assumptions, in a way which just was never done before, which I know that some people mm -hmm. my generation find disrespectful. Mm -hmm. But it's also like there's a there's a kind of confidence that's admirable here too in an attention to social justice. Mm -hmm. And so all these things seem to me to be saying, like we're actually finally, just in the last few years, actually starting to make some significant changes in the way we look at and talk about race. At the same time, we are responding more violently <laughs> towards evidence of racism. Oh yeah, so okay, so that you kind of like you really answered your own question, but let me just put it this way. If that was if what you just said, if that's the example of progress that we're that that you are talking about, yeah. I will concede that point. However, that same progress did not stop Derek Chauvin from choking out George Floyd. He did Yep. That progress did not stop the country from um, um, uh, electing in 2016 a person who trafficked, and this is a nice way of saying it, who trafficked in white uh, racism and racist rhetoric. That same type of progress did not stop uh, Breonna Taylor and others from being shot and killed. Police have that same type of training. They have diversity training. They have sensitivity training, implicit bias training, and none of that is stopped. My argument 
And this, I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I've been kind of working on ever since we uh, finished the book uh, back in 2018 on Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, um, that I can make an argument, Rick, that the more we do this and to try to be helpful, the more what King called, MLK called, the white backlash kicks in. Yeah. That folk are being, are resenting the fact that they have to, you know, look around and say, oh, you know, we need to diversify our table a little bit. I like the table the way it is. Why I have to do that? You're infringing on my rights. You're in uh, where, where, Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Wisconsin. Did they did 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 um, some Second Amendment enthusiasts march on the Capitol there, <laughs> like they did here in Tennessee? And yep, yeah, yeah, just they were. And, and 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 what were they saying? They were saying that my rights are being infringed. So the more that we, the argument can be that, yeah, the more that we are doing this. Um, and trying, because everybody says, okay, let's have a conversation. I'm going to listen. And people like yourself and others are listening, and you're saying, okay, that makes sense. Let me try to do this. Let me be trying to be more responsive in this. But there are other people that are saying, no, I'm not going to be responsive. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to be what I want to be, and I'm going to do what I want to do because it's my right as an American in this country. And then we get to this stalemate, and then that's why we can still have police officers and others do exactly what it is that they want to do. And not only that, and here's the other piece to all of this, is the whole notion of getting away with it. This is, you really want to know what African Americans that I have talked to and, and, and people uh, that I know, you know what they're afraid of? They really are afraid that, that these officers may be charged, they may even have a trial, but somehow they're going to get away with it. And, and, and you know, I, I line eyes again, betray us, and betray all of those other people who are out there protesting and trying to bring attention, not only to this uh, killing, but to the previous ones and the ones uh, that are gonna happen in the future if we do not uh, address this issue and address it for real and accept the consequences of our actions. Um, so there's that worry, this worry that they, that yeah. they made, that. They'll be prosecuted, but they might get off, right? Mm -hmm. That that that. Have we seen this before? This is history. We yeah, yeah. It, it can happen. And and it seems to me this is this is part of a growing distrust of the institutions we've set, especially justice institutions. Oh yeah. Right. No question. But but institutions in general, so lack of confidence, lack of trust in the ability to meaningfully reform government, mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of enforcement institutions like, like law, like the, uh, the, the police, mm -hmm. um, but also legislative bodies to get, mm -hmm. get meaningful access and reform in, in our laws. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also other, other institutions like education. And that, that I, I think there, I mean, there's a lot of arguments, right? That like, yeah. Our educate our public education system has really failed Black America. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also seeing that same kind of distrust, lack of confidence in our kind of our traditional institutions by the right, and this this is what generates you know the protests you mm -hmm. were referring to. Yeah, but right the militia groups uh, in nation's capitals over the stay-at-home orders. Mm -hmm. um, can, if we have both the left and the right mm -hmm. um, protesting the, uh, 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 in a protest generated by a lack of confidence in the ability to reform our institutions, mm -hmm. are we going to end up making things better or worse? 
Right. I think, you know, that's a good question. The only, I'll just flip it a little bit to say that when right-wing protesters protest about stay-at-home orders, what is the consequence? And, and here's what I'm talking about. Um, what you protest matters. And I've, I've always said that and I've always talked about that. What you protest matters. On the one hand, there are people risking uh, COVID. COVID is still here, risking COVID, you know, going out, protesting because um, of Black Lives and because somebody got um, choked, uh, George Floyd got choked out by Derek Coven and this whole thing, this whole month that I just kind of uh, ran through and all of that. And then you got some people they want to go get a haircut or they want to go to a restaurant and then they don't trust their government to keep them safe from COVID and all of that. That's one. Second, how I'm, I'm going to always for this whole conversation and try to bring this back to policing in America, because that's, that's a huge issue. How are police and how do police respond to protesters? You got one group of protesters, they get tear gas, they get rubber, uh, shot with rubber bullets, they get pushed back, and then you got other protesters with guns, with weapons, which you would think that if I was a police officer, I would be you know, in my riot gear or I would be protecting myself. But, you know, hey, it's their right to do this, we just here. And if you do a counter-protest, typically they'll go after the counter-protesters before they will go with it. So when there are protests like that for uh, people that protest and stay at home, or they say that they do not trust in these institutions, my argument back to them is that, oh, really? The institution seems to be working for you fine. The institution of policing seems to be okay with you because they're not you know, giving you any hassle. The institution for the government seems to be working for you. They're not asking police to arrest you or to push you aside or to step on you. Matter of fact, I think it was Michigan that actually closed their legislative assembly because of them. So you got actual government acquiescing to your um, um, right to be there with your guns. So then when young people out in the street come out with just a body, voice, and a sign, and knowing that if they have anything on their person that look like a weapon, they will be shot on the spot. And it would be justified because they had a weapon. Can they invoke Second Amendment rights? In other words, how would we like to see the folk that has been in Minneapolis, New York, Memphis, um, Los Angeles, Chicago, what if all those people just said, you know, we're going to invoke our Second Amendment rights and carry guns? That would not be a pretty sight. And so they can't do that, though. They know they can't do that. They barely can just go out on the street anyway. So when you talk about the two different protests, no, I'm looking at the response and the government overwhelmingly responds differently. So to you, Mr. Protester Second Amendment and Mrs. Protester Second Amendment and your guns and you wanna go get a haircut, the government is acquiescing to you. Matter of fact, the government has opened. You reopen, go out. No need to protest anymore. <laughs> you won. Go, go, have fun. Okay, so and... you're saying, and I understand <laughs> that, right? You're saying that we've got these different standards, and the police respond very differently. And you, you've got, you've got, yeah. you, you've got, so a group of white protesters that that have weapons, they're occupying state capitals <laughs> and so forth, and, and police right. just stand back and let them do it. Right. Okay. But here's the response I'm seeing on social media by the people right. who defend. Right, those kinds of protests. They're saying, okay, well, yeah, they're 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 exhibiting their Second Amendment rights. They're showing the weapons, 
uh -huh. but they actually aren't causing any damage. Mm -hmm. Watch the protests, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, in response to the, right. the murder of George Floyd, what we're seeing is it's not that people are brandishing weapons, but they're actually doing damage. They're, mm -hmm. they're destroying buildings and they're setting them on fire. And so that's why there's a different police response, not whether, because maybe they don't have the symbolism of violence, or right. weapons, but they're actually causing destruction. Right. So my response to that, because we've had this conversation before too, is that, um, well, I could say much, much more, but I'll just leave it at here. That, yes, that may be happening, but even the peaceful protesters get caught up in all of that. So the, the, the response is already militant before the first building um, um, is, is destroyed or uh, there's destruction on any bill, that they are already in position. And what we have been arguing is that when the police show up for certain protests, they are already ready to not de-escalate, but to escalate. I was just reading before uh, coming on, uh, on the uh, podcast, I was just reading a 50 uh, a study they have shown for 50 years, a 50-year study, they've gone back and look at all of the uprisings in America. Every last uprising, did you just name anyone, started, first of all, the uprising started because of police violence, typically to a black person. Number two, even when they show up, the police escalate instead of de-escalate. How would it look then if police escalated the Second Amendment protesters? What if police start pushing on them? Start, you know, um, 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 beating the um, baton, uh, I mean, beating the shields with the batons. Move, 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 move. Uh. What if well, the, I, I, I would guess, I think we've seen some of that in places like Waco and Ruby Ridge, right? So there you, and then all of a sudden, right? But, but even, even in this, though, there are some instances where the protesters, those protesters have pushed back on police officers and there is no response, which leads me to believe that there is no training issue. There's only a character issue as I, uh, wrote on my blog just the other day, the character of the individual. Who do I respond to? And, and maybe it's because of the Ruby Ridges and all of that, that maybe they are saying, if we push back on these folk, they might shoot back. But we know that many of these folk in, in this crowd would not shoot back. And, and let me just add this. Police have no problem with arresting black and brown bodies they are going to arrest every every morning you wake up there were over 250 arrests there were 300 arrests there were 350 arrests so i this whole notion of black people not you know being arrested or not being held account that is that is a myth that is a, just go to just go to any uh, prison jail any uh, facility in america you will see that that's not a problem the problem is the way that policing has been done. And when policing those few occasions, Rick, where de-escalation uh, uh, de happens, protests, stand out. They'll just shout. They'll do all they want to do. Police just stand there. Somebody on the bullhorn says, you know, last words and everybody goes home. And then it's like, it's amazing that it was a peaceful protest, the police. No, the police did their jobs. That's what they supposed to do. They don't supposed to escalate. No. Um, police, I mean, I have my own stories and I won't just uh, share them here, but um, please, I'll just say this, please believe black people when they say 
that police escalate and say things while they are out there trying to get a rise out of the people. They really do. And, um, and yes, not everybody that's out there in the streets have been through um, um, nonviolent direct action training and know how to handle things nonviolently. Um, but, you know, I do draw a line when we talk about violence on buildings versus violence to people. And I don't use violence. I use destruction. You know, yeah, you can talk about destruction of property, but violence can happen to human beings. And you typically, usually, before any of this happens, there is a violent act upon a body by a police officer that was sworn to protect and serve. So, thank, and thank you for bringing this right back mm -hmm. to policing. And this is, and, and it seems to me, we've, uh, while we've seen examples, of, like in Flint, Michigan, where the, the police chief marches with the protesters, right? As in, and, right. And there seems to be, like in some communities, I think, um, well, my own community of La Crosse, we've been in, in investment a number of years ago at neighborhood resource officers so we get officers in the communities especially the most racially diverse communities to develop relationships and right. then and then we had our mayor willing to to sit down and meet with and listen to the organizers of the protests here that right. very first night right at the time the mayor's wife was marching with the protesters and so forth this all of this makes a difference mm -hmm. in escalating things um, and yet I'm, I'm also hearing that there's like police chiefs and even mayors have limited ability to change the culture um, and to really make the changes that you want to see happen. And, and uh, but I'm hearing all kinds of different explanations. Part of it is the strength of the unions, that the unions have incredible power at kind of maintaining culture. Right. I've heard this especially as a criticism of the Minneapolis Police department. Oh yeah, well, most definitely. Mm -hmm. Right, and then and then the other thing is uh, the qualified immunity laws protecting police officers yeah. from prosecution. So, are are there specific things mm -hmm. um, that that you and I would say other community leaders mm -hmm. who are addressing these injustices? Are there specific things that you are asking for? Yes, most definitely. Number one, hashtag defund the police. <laughs> what we mean by that? Most of your city, if, you, if, if we would just take a look at the city budgets um, around the country, just especially major metropolitan areas, a large chunk of the budget, depending on where you are, close to 50% almost, go to policing efforts. Small chunk of that money goes to like, um, community um, uh, policing or, you know, uh, you know, you hear these stories about these gyms in, the, in, in, in certain neighborhoods where the police officers come and hang out with the that, that, that's, that That's very, very small, if, if any. Most of it is just weaponry, you know, um, um, you know, tanks and, and military style weapons. And so we're talking about defund the police, but how did you do that? And this is where really the rubber meets the road. And this is where the people have to come in. If I am a candidate for mayor, and if I run on a platform saying that this is a problem, here's what I'm going to do. Um, or if I run as a city council person, who by the way, um, endorse these police union contracts. These police union contracts just do not fall out of the sky. Somebody has to approve them and show city elected officials. So if I'm running, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm talking about reforming the police uh, um, department. The people have to look at that as an important issue and vote for me so I can begin to do that. The problem is police still, 
And this is what my research shows. Police still get a huge benefit of the doubt. That's why it's hard to convict them. The juries that are made up of the people in that community can look at a video and say, that's terrible, that's bad. But then they get into a courtroom and then they begin to hear, well, maybe, well, maybe he was afraid. Maybe he did fear for his life. Oh, wait. That usually works for white officers, not 100% of the time, but 98.9% of the time. But in, because in the same Minneapolis um, area, uh, Muhammad Noor um, was uh, convicted 12 years for shooting, not a black person, but a white woman who was on vacation. And he's used the same trope. I fear for my life, didn't work for him. And guess what? You didn't have to have a whole lot of protests centered around that. Why? Because the DA immediately charged, immediately went to court. So we even get race, there's even a tinge of racism and who gets charged and why and how. So these police unions, the police uh, are, are powerful only because they have people in elected uh, positions um, to sign off on everything that they want for policing. So one of the things that we're trying to do is, hey, when's the next negotiation for the union contract for your police officers? We want to be there. We want to show up. We want people who have been affected directly by bad policing to show up. And then let's start putting stuff in that contract, like you were saying, the whole immunity thing. The, uh, um, uh, right now in many um, um, districts across the country, police officers have a 48 to 72 hour cooling off period where they don't have to talk to anybody but their union reps. Lawyers, the DA, no one. And we all know what those three days are for, two or three days are for is to construct the story, the narrative, and to come back out into the public. And we ought to give some protection to the quote, good cops who may want to come forward. Here's another myth, the whole myth of the good cop. Individually, great people that are police officers, but within the system, they are stifled. Why? Because they know that if they come forward, they may not get the protection that they need. Their job may be in jeopardy. And heaven forbid that they are on a call and not get the backup that they need. So they don't come forward. Which leads me to believe, by the way, when we talk about there are more good cops than bad cops, I don't know. The, if... If, if there were more good cops than bad cops, then good cops would not be afraid to come forward when bad cops do, you know, wrongful actions. The reason why they don't come forward because they know there are more maybe bad cops or cops that won't support them um, by coming forward. So yeah, those are some of the things that we're doing. It's all about electing the people that will at least fight for your issue. The problem is police get a huge, huge um, um, benefit of the doubt. And especially in communities that policing is going well, or, you know, I see the police as my friend. Um, they protect me. They protect my business. Why would I want to defund the police? And so it's going to be very, very hard. It's going to be after all of these protests, after all the people, when we start talking about changing up the narrative a little bit and maybe having some um, tougher sanctions, if you will, I think everybody's going to go back to their corners and just say, you know, in the private voting booth, I'm going to vote for the person that's going to be more law and order than reform. And that's where we are. Yeah, and I'm. I'm worried about that kind of response, the mm -hmm. uh, more stress on the law and or, order and the increasing militarization of the police. And one of the reasons is I was, I was looking last year at the 
statistics on police suicide, which uh, it's, yeah. it's really alarming, uh, the rate at which that has been going up over the last 10 years. More money needs to be spent as well. Part of the platform is mental health for police officers as well too, in part, and as a pastor, you know, I am discerning part of that is just the cognitive dissonance that you have to have a lot of times um, when you police. Uh, it's just, you know, um, especially if you're an African-American police officer, yeah. you, you, you just really, or if you're the chief and you're african do you, I mean, this is my pastor side coming out, right? I, I'm like, I, I get it. You really have to wrestle with what it is that you are supporting what you're doing. Now, now that's as far as I go with that because a lot of people have just said, forget it, I'm just going to, like the cops in Atlanta. You know, people come back to me, I've, uh, I've had this happen where the cops just dragged and tasered the young couple um, and just, you know, messed up the car and everything. Where now six officers have been, you know, charged, you know, a couple of officers have been fired. But everybody was like, oh, these were black officers. I'm like, it's systemic. It doesn't matter. It's systemic. You can buy in to bad policing and you can just go out and you can do it. And that what makes it, you know, kind of tough and kind of hard. So even when you try to diversify the police, if police of color are doing the same things that white police officers are doing, or they are doing the same thing that the embedded culture uh, is doing, participate in dot, um, don't snitch campaigns and stuff like that. There's no reform there just because you have uh, a black face uh, with the uniform on. It is systemic. It is, uh, as Walter Wink, the great theologian would say, it is a spirit. It is the uh, spirit of the institution itself that then takes over even the individuals. And then you get caught up and you're like, oh, my God, I got caught up in this. What is going on with me? So, yes, mental health is, uh, is huge. And, and we would rather spend money on that than tanks and, uh, you know, rubber bullets, missiles, and a whole lot of other things that the uh, police officer has. So how will you know when we've made progress. And this is, oh. and this is one, you know, so here I'm looking at it. I mean, I, I'm simply because I'm white, I can, be, I can be angry about this. I can be committed to say, okay, we're gonna get on board with some reforms and do some things. Um, but I'm not gonna have the same visceral reaction, right? right? Um, but I do wanna know like, how I can participate, how I can get on board with really helping to address these systematic right. racial issues and injustices, right? Right. right? But I also want to know, like, what are the benchmarks? How do I know that we've made progress? Because one thing I know for sure, we're not going to quit seeing videos like the one we saw with George Floyd. I mean, maybe not, maybe not a white police officer on a black man's neck for eight minutes. Mm -hmm. But we're gonna, because everybody has cell phones, because police officers are gonna you have bad judgment, there, things are gonna be happening, no matter what we do, there are gonna be at least occasional cases. So things right. could be getting much better, and yet we still see evidences wow. of terrible injustice. How do we know that we're actually making progress? Right, 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 right. Yeah, um, I'm gonna say something here, Rick, that that may rub the audience the wrong way here, um, because I, I'm really, I have really wrestled with this from time, time on time. Just you know, I've been at this thing for a while now, and as a student of history. Um, and maybe that's the that's the issue with me. Maybe I, I read too much history. Maybe I know, you know, um, as a uh, student of rhetoric and as a scholar of rhetoric, I know some of these arguments have been made in the past. I can just go as far back as the founding of the country, especially in the 19th century, where uh, people are making arguments about police brutality, about, you know, this same thing over and over again. Here's what I'm trying to get people to understand. 
to just ask this question. I'm not saying it's going to happen. How about that? I'm going to be a little bit hopeful. What if there is not any progress that is tangible or seen in such a way that we can just celebrate we arrived? What if the best that we can hope for is to live in the tension that racism affords us? What if we say and admit, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, what if we admit that this country was founded at its core, founded on, even, forget the words for a moment, all men at that time were created equal, mm, founded on the backs of enslaved humans and the removal of Native Americans from their homeland. And accept it, just say, that, yes, that, that that is so baked into our psyche that we cannot even escape that. And the best that we can do is to live in the tension and to have these conversations that we're having for white people to begin to do work with other white people. My thing is, what if we just accept the fact that we may have to live in the tension that we are all going to be uncomfortable, that there are uh, spaces and places where we may not feel uh, the best, but yet the small victories, such as something as simple as an acknowledgement of what I just talked about, a eureka moment um, that somebody who had been thinking one way for so long all of a sudden said, you know, I'm, I'm changing my position. Now, would that change the overarching narrative? Of course not. But at least it is those small, you're talking about benchmark. Those are some small indicators. Yeah. But as far as um, the large, like, you know, I do not foresee police officers laying down their weapons and just renouncing, you know, the whole whole departments renouncing their violence upon um, um, the American citizens and American people. I, I just don't see that happening. But I, I would like to think that I would see one or maybe two police officers say something to the effect, you know, this job is, is taking the life out of me. That I need to do something else. I need to, I, 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 I can't do this anymore. And, or I need to really begin to talk to my fellow police officers about what this means to me and how does this mean to me. So, so yes, smaller benchmarks but as far as you know getting rid of this i just don't see it history has not history is on my side i mean we have had these these type of conversations we have had these type you know more people are coming and i i would like to hope that some of my teaching and some of the there's so much out there on race and racism and on policing. And I mean, people have spent years, decades researching this stuff. It is out. Everybody knows it. Police know it. They get it in the police academy. They bring in folk. They do all of this and it's just rejected. It is just like pushed to the side. It's not education. I'm sorry. It is just not education. Education, if that was the case, we would have been better, way much better by now. It is out there. It is the wheel. It is the character. It is the heart. You know, we talk about uh, a spiritual revival that needs to take place. You know, exercising of some demons. That's, that's now, you know, because... Anything other than that, I mean, I don't know. It just, the benchmarks are 
but just celebrate the victories. Celebrate the small benchmarks. Celebrate the fact that, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Rick, um, if you're in a board meeting or if you're in a group or organization and somebody make mention, hey, we need more diversity. You're right. I mean, 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, that person probably wouldn't have said that. You know, celebrate that. Uh, but also know that there are people literally, literally, not figuratively, literally dying because systemic racism is killing and choking the life out of them each and every day. Please understand that. Please know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We went we went well behind beyond the time I had planned, although I also expected that. So you thank you. I and well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing also. I mean, I'm just this is one of the great things about this kind of new electronic media that we Yeah. I know it's um, there's all this evidence that it's really polarizing, you know, Twitter and Facebook, the other social media and so forth, they they use these algorithms that tend to make us even more polarized and yet they also give us the opportunity so that I can sit in on a Bible study that you are doing with your congregation in Memphis. And it is, uh, it is wonderful for me. I just, I find myself just lifted up by that experience. So thank you for persisting in that kind of work. And thank you for taking the time to just talk to me and listen to my questions. Thank you. Thank you. And you mentioned our work. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I am the uh, pastor of Gifts of Life Ministries, and uh, we do have um, within our um, ministry, uh, which we call our social justice um, and public advocacy ministry. Um, and uh, if you would like to be involved in the movement, you don't see yourself as a protester. You don't see yourself making a sign and marching or being on the street corner. You don't see yourself doing it, but you are sympathetic to the needs and you want to be part of the movement. Um, you can make a donation to our social justice um, ministry fund to help us reach out to protesters, uh, help us to educate, to help us to do these things that we really need to do. We are still trying to do the thing. We're still trying to do the ministry. We're still trying to do the things that we need to do because we do want to celebrate in those small victories. And we have seen some here in Memphis, Tennessee. So we just want to make a little bit more. So if you want to make a donation to Gifts of Life Ministries, um, you can do that as well. Well, thank you so much. And I will I will put a link on the, uh, on the description for this podcast. I'll put a link right in there so yes. people can know where to go. And uh, so all right all right well thank you rick thank you and <laughs> hopefully I can and anytime if you um um if we want to do this again i'd love to do it again as well, well too. what i tell you what one thing we did not get to is talking about martin luther king and um i, yeah. wanted, I wanted to bring that up but i thought well that's going to take another <laughs> half hour or hour so maybe at some point we talk about that because i know yes. that you're, a, you're a scholar of of, of kings and uh, and there's a lot of concern about how he's both appropriated and misappropriated. Yes, 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 yes. Let's let's do that. All right. All right. All right. Take okay. care. Take care. Bye.